At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. And I'm here with Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Always good. And like you said, my name is Walker. We are going to talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Then we're going to talk about the games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then on to the topic of the week which is leave my sand castle alone, you bully. Or in more normal terms, multiplayer solitaire. But first, before we get into any of that, we would just like to once again thank everyone very sincerely who participated in, in any way in our live stream last Saturday to raise money in support of Food Banks Canada. We're very, very pleased that we can say that the final total raised from Swaggers was $1,338. We're very pleased with that result. We had a goal, a tentative goal of $500. We kind of blew past that. And then we had another goal of $1,000. And then we blew past that. So it's really, really great. Thanks, of course, to the people who participated in the stream. Efka and Elaine from No Pun Included. As well as Mark Nealon and Kellen from Board Game Barrage. We laughed, we played the crew, we were able to give away copies of the crew Mission Deep Sea from Cosmos. Thank you very much for their support as well. Did we play the crew, though? <laughs> Did we really? It was very useful to be able to demonstrate to the rest of the world, board game streamers, they're just like us. We played. So, the- well, this is what I'm worried about, because we said we don't have any affiliation with any any producers or distributors, but it's very clear that we've been paid off. Like Cosmo said, we need players to know how not to play the crew. <laughs> and boy, did we jump at that bit and, and and show exactly how that's not to be done. There are so many Watch It Played videos online. I think we could pioneer our own Watch It Not Played videos where we played the game correctly by the rules, but we mess it up so badly because we're a bunch of goobers. It was nice to have company. If it was just us, 
that would be bad, but it was good to have some some company in the suffering. It's so true. Look, I learned a lot, not just about the crew. I learned from Efka that Gaslands isn't real life. I learned from Elaine that nobody thinks my jokes are funny. I think these are two very valuable lessons that I think my parents ought to have taught me earlier on. It's a shame. You'd think you'd take your father's disappointing looks as hints around these things, but maybe he should have been more clear. I just took it as sarcasm. Now on to the Eurus, which is post-human saga. Boy, have we played this a lot. <laughs> so there's been an expansion to post-human saga, which I keep meaning to get around to trying, because the designer Gordon Kalea has a lot of interesting ideas, and I like a lot of his design work. I just didn't really feel like it came together in post-human saga, and I found it a very frustrating, unsatisfying experience. And I keep hoping that the additional modules that he's designed, which he was very kind to send to us, will improve on the base experience. And what happened was he sent it to us, I got it, and then I left town. So unfortunately, it's going to have to wait a little bit longer, and then I will actually go back to Post-Human Saga. But other than that, no, I have not gone back to it. I know. I remember that it did have a lot of ideas. I remember it being very long. I be. I remember some of it was very luck-driven. I think when you were flipping up tiles and who got certain tiles, if I remember correctly. Well, that at least you get to draft. I liked everything concerning the tiles, honestly, because you could get points for laying out certain configurations, you know, standard tiling, Euro scoring. I liked the idea of having some sort of adventure element interface with that Euro tiling, but I didn't like the adventure elements and I didn't think the interface quite came together. But that was Post-Human Saga by Gordon Kalea. Now on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you get around to this week? I played the new edition of Galaxy Trucker. Galaxy Trucker was first put out over 10 years ago by Vladik Vatel and Czech Games Edition, and it's now been reissued in 2021. If you read the box text and all of the copy surrounding the new edition of Galaxy Trucker, the words family game keep getting uttered over and over again. And when I initially saw this, I'm like, did they really change the game that much? Because I adore Galaxy Trucker. It's one of my favorite games. I think that real-time tiling is a joy, and then watching your creation actually go through its paces is that additional layer that really elevates the entire genre. Sometimes it results in complete destruction, sometimes it results in a relatively clean run, and I'm able to appreciate both of those different kinds of fun play experiences. But playing the new Galaxy Trucker, it is exactly the old Galaxy Trucker. There are two incredibly minor changes. One of them is that if you play the full three-run game, you have these titles that you can seek to defend. You can get these Chivos in round one, and then you try to defend it in round two, and then whoever got it in round two can try to defend it in round three for slightly uh, for, for minor cash boosts. It's kind of like the reward for having the fewest exposed connectors, but with a little bit more variety. The other minor, minor change in terms of gameplay is that the track around which your ships race has been modified a bit to give the player who finishes first a slightly added advantage, and the net result is to constrict the track a little bit, so the danger of being lapped by whoever's in first and therefore forcing you to retire has been increased a bit. And then there's a change which isn't really a gameplay change, it's mostly a presentation change, which is, in order to make it really short, and I have to assume being charitable, that's what Czech Games Edition means when they say it's a family game, they just mean it's shorter now. The default play mode is just doing one trip. 
Rather than the standard gameplay mode being you do round one, then round two, then round three, now you can just pick whether you're doing rounds one, two, or three, and then do that. But honestly, the gameplay is all the same, and you can take your original edition of Galaxy Trucker, published over ten years ago, and just play one run if you want to, and there is zero gameplay difference in terms of doing so. And that's fine. I mean, I, I played... Galaxy Trucker, this new edition, twice with the recommended rules of only playing one run. And it's still Galaxy Trucker. It's a great game. It's marvelously compelling as you desperately try to satisfy all these demands on your time and your building constraints. And there are different ways to play it because some people approach it very, very differently. I always go very crew heavy and I don't care about how many exposed connectors I have. And I, I usually benefit from that and pay for that in equal measure. Other people really focus on other things. Some people like you, for example, don't look at the cards that are coming up in the given run, which strikes me as an act of sheer lunacy. I, on the other hand, the instant I put down a single component of whatever type, I immediately start going through the cards. But there's a lot of flexibility there, and people appreciate it on different levels. But again, family game, it is not. This is a relatively rules-intensive experience in a real-time package, which doesn't strike me as good fodder for family gaming. I don't know what they're using by that term, but when I hear family gaming, I usually mean very, very accessible and not necessarily leading to the kind of direct confrontation which can cause some kind of consternation amongst certain gamers of certain proclivities. Galaxy Trucker doesn't have any of the latter, but it's got, it certainly doesn't satisfy the former condition at all. The final thing I'll note about the new edition of Galaxy Trucker is that there have been some mild component differences, and it, I have to ascribe to that the fact that the new edition is very, very inexpensive. We're now in a market where, broadly speaking, the MSRP of most board games is, you know, 50 to 60 bucks, and that might get you a board, some cards, and maybe some pieces of wood or plastic. But Galaxy Trucker has always been crammed with a whole bunch of high-quality components, boards for the ships, unique plastic sculpts, and interesting little battery pieces on top of just standard generic cubes and other plastic ships and, and so forth. And I've been seeing Galaxy Trucker being listed very, very good prices in a lot of places. If you don't have any Galaxy Trucker at all, I highly, highly recommend you go out and get the new edition. It is a marvelous gameplay experience that has aged very well, and I continuously enjoy going back to it. If you have the old Galaxy Trucker, I would assert that you have zero reason to go for this one. There are no changes that warrant purchasing a new edition. I don't know if this is going to bifurcate the expansion plans, because if they plan on releasing any of the, the old expansion material then it's not going to be compatible with the old editions because the new tiles are slightly smaller, and so it's not backwards compatible at all. I'm all in on the previous edition. I have both big expansions as well as the collector's box, and that is indeed how I like to play, with just everything thrown in, like a massive kitchen sink, and the more experienced players taking on additional handicaps with some of the alternate ship layouts, etc., etc. Anyway, Galaxy Trucker is a large universe, but the current new edition is a lovely entry point for those that have never gotten into it. I don't know if there are plans for the expansion, but I would at least warn you, don't be fooled into thinking it's a family game. It may be now a 30-minute experience because you're only doing one run, but it's relatively rules-intensive, and there are lots of little tricky corner cases, and it very frequently involves catastrophic failure. And again, that's not the kind of thing that I associate with family gaming. So that's my experience with the new edition of Galaxy Trucker. So it doesn't include any of the expansions whatsoever? If you go follow a QR code, there is an online digital-only version of Rough Road Ahead. That is it. Gotcha. And did you play the app at all? I'm just wondering if any like the app stuff got integrated into 
like some of the changes might have been from the app. Some of the app stuff got integrated into the previous cycle of Galaxy Trucker via the missions expansion. I have played the missions expansion. It's awfully cool. I have not played the app version. I own it, but I bought it back when I thought that I would be willing to use my phone as a gaming device, and for some reason I have an odd mental block precluding me from being able to do that. And that's Galaxy Trucker. We got to play Barrage. Love Barrage. This is put out by Cranio Creations. This is a game where you're blocking streams of water and running them through hydro dams. And you're stealing water from other players, I guess you'd say, or or stopping them from getting water and using your own dams, or you're funneling away their water, or because you can only use water that's stopped on your dam, and no one else can use that water, and you can only run water through your power stations, but you can use anyone's sort of water conduit, like where the water flows, like the pipes they flow through. So there's this cool inner working of stealing position and manipulating the water and this is all on top of a very interesting resource system where when you build buildings you have to pay the resources and they go on this wheel and you turn the wheel and there's some action spaces that let you turn the wheel more you want this wheel to turn because you don't get these resources back until it goes all the way around not only do you not get the resources back but you also put the type of building you're building on there and you can't build that type again either until it falls off as well because you have one tile for each type of building and then on top of this there's uh tech that you can get that let you build the same building again but also maybe will let you turn it more or make it cheaper or all sorts of special abilities unique abilities for every faction as well just an all-around great game i want it definitely i think in my top 10 I wish I could play Barrage more. It is a lovely experience, as you say. Coming from Quebec, though, I can assert, it makes less sense to steal someone's water than it does to just bind them to a long-term contract where you steal their power at the end of it. That's just more efficient. That's it's true. And and we know it's true because we've seen it work in practice. I personally harbor great love for Newfoundland. I feel bad about what my province has done to them. And that is Barrage by Cranio Creations. I get to play more Ankh, Gods of Egypt. And, oh my goodness, so much game in a large box, but so much game in a box. Played four players, got to experience the merge again. Unfortunately, the full dynamics of the merge didn't get to manifest because the game ended very shortly after the merge because one player was basically running away with it. Now, that player happened to be me because I was playing with all new players, and Ankh is a very deterministic game. And like many very deterministic games, if you have one person at the table who's played three or four times and everyone else hasn't played at all... Well, chances of it being a highly competitive experience are relatively low. I'm not going to claim any great insight into how Ankh works. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this beast of a game design. It's not a beast in terms of complexity. It's a beast in terms of emergent gameplay. And that, of course, thrills me. One of the things that I think is emblematic of this is the way some of the asymmetry works. Now, yes, I know it's an Eric Lang game, and so, of course, it's got asymmetry. But some of the powers don't immediately seem evidently particularly flexible or interesting or important, but I have been proven wrong in almost all cases. I chose to play as Horus exclusively because I find the Horus mini amazing. It's a giant hawk-headed guy with massive wings holding two badass spears. Looks great. 
And his power, though, didn't strike me as particularly useful. The way his power works is at the start of a battle sequence, you can pre-designate two provinces, and in those two provinces, when the fight starts, you can name a particular battle card, and nobody, including yourself, gets to play that battle card. And that's an eh, I didn't necessarily see the advantage. Upon playing, I immediately started seeing the possibilities, and they delighted me. For example, if you're in a province and you don't really care about winning the fight, but on the other hand, you happen to notice that you have more infrastructure there and other people don't, well, you can just prevent anyone from building there. And then you get to maintain your dominance in that province in terms of building. You don't care whether you win the fight or not. You just want the buildings to uh, stay to stay the same. And so you stipulate that nobody can build. On the other hand, if you have a slight battle advantage, you can just stipulate that nobody gets to play chariots. Chariots being the incredibly powerful military card. But if you already have the advantage, you can just keep that advantage. Several other instances where I saw somebody was loading in a lot larger number of troops. Well, then I say nobody can, gets to play Miracle because Miracle is the card that says you get points for every one of your troops that dies. I, I'm going into detail about this Horus power just because it's not just about Horus. It's about how every god has played and about how almost every special power has had reverberations of this type in Ankh Gods of Egypt. I haven't even started with some of the alternate scenarios. I haven't really been able to see the merge mechanic shine to its utmost yet. This is a truly impressive design in terms of its subtle implications of, of relatively simple actions. There's a fair amount of rules, but the actions themselves are so incredibly simple. But even within turn two or three, with new players, they start looking at the action selection board and saying, well, I want to do this, but I can't do that, because if I do that, then this other player will be able to do this thing, but I want to trigger the action, but that's tied to the other track. And they immediately, their heads start melting out their ears. I love it. And, and, and the integration of those cards in the battle system, right, just brings that whole thing to life, right? The dizzying implications of even simple card play and the opportunities that they provide are really, really entrancing me. I cannot wait to play more Ankh Gods of Egypt. I, as I say, I still haven't wrapped my head around it, so maybe the bottom is going to fall out and I'm going to come out at the end of this after a few plays deciding that it's not as good as I, I, I thought it was. But I can't wait to discover that. That's Ankh Gods of Egypt, released this year by Eric Lang and Simon. I'm going to play Niroshima Hex again, finally, with my nice new big box that has all the armies in it this is put out by portal games and it's a skirmish game they say you can play up to five players no. but you really can't it's a two-player game where uh, they have many many different factions you can choose from over a dozen and they all have their own little quirks so we played a few games today with someone who had never played before and i'd say many of the new components are great uh they replaced the four basic armies with new tiles so even though these tiles are a lot thicker than the original and they stand way up higher in the box it's fine they have a double layered board so you don't have the hexes you know sliding all over the place they have new score markers for all the factions which are very nice but some things that and new faction sheets for every faction so nice big giant board and the rule books are all new they're laid out much better the rules are much more clear and like i said laid out you know where they should be in the rule book as opposed to scattered all over the place a few things i didn't like were was the fact that you drop the armies in these like long cylinder things like in the insert they're like just these big pock holes and trying to get your giant fingers in to pull out 25 Ugh. tiles for each faction was kind of a pain and they didn't really leave any spaces for all of the factions that have special oh. tokens. So you just sort of have these extra tokens all over the place. But what I managed to do was get really small bags and they sort of, I can tuck them in between the factions, like where you put your, where you're supposed to put your fingers. So it sort of keeps them together, but you'd think they would have incorporated something there to do that. There's lots of giant wells to put tokens, but that means they're just, they'd just all be sort of thrown in together. But anyway. 
Neoshima Hex. You're flipping up three tiles, you're throwing away one, you're playing two on the board, you're trying to outmaneuver your opponent, because once a battle tile is played or the, or the board fails and you, you're starting to kill other units and it goes down in, uh, in an initiative order, so it's very puzzly saying, okay, well, if I put this guy here, he'll kill him before he does any damage, and I have push powers and I have movement powers and I have shields and armor, and there's all these different abilities that you can figure out this very interesting puzzle and in how to outplay your opponent. Love Neoshima Hex every time. I've learned from schoolyard play experiences from many years ago that if you just claim to have an invincibility against everything field, that tends to be pretty dominant. It's true. I've employed that strategy. Has there been any indication that future factions will have components that will be compatible with all these things they've released? Not that I've seen. I was just thinking that while I was about to gear up talking about it, like, because the faction sheet, there's no way they're going to keep the same box outlay, I'm sure, for the upcoming factions. There's no way that the new faction sheets will fit in that Mm. box. They're much bigger than the box already. Uh, I, I'm hoping that the, uh, there'll be a plastic score marker in all the new factions. So at least they'll match everything else. But there's, like I said, there's no room in the box to put right. the tiles. So, well, they've been pretty good with promos. Maybe we can be optimistic and hope that there'll be promo versions of the new sheets for people with the collector version. True. Yeah. They, yeah. Like we've seen with, we've seen with 51st state, they supply, they're more than happy to, uh, do fan base stuff. So that's nice. And that is Neoshima Hex by Portal Games. On the topic of revealing three things and playing two of them, I got to play a web-published game called Towering Dice. This was submitted to the Ludum Dare 49 competition. This is where people design a game over the course of a 72-hour weekend and submit it as to a competition. Mostly digital games, but some analog board games. And this was designed by a friend of mine by the name of Mark Megas. So, personal disclosure... And it all that it requires is a bunch of dice. So I took all the dice from One Deck Dungeon and got to playing. I can explain to you the rules because it's that simple. You roll three dice, you place any two of them, wash, rinse, repeat. And the goal is to make as tall a stack of dice as possible. The rub is that you can put any die you want on the table. But if you want to put a die on top of another die, it must cover exactly as many pips as the die is showing. Want to place a five on top of other dice? Well, it's got to cover five pips. As a result, you have this weird interplay between the die values and your spatial requirements because the goal of the game is to get as tall a tower as possible for as long as possible before the thing topples and or you run out of dice. And just the the, the subtle intricacies of nudging a die over or twisting it so it'll cover more pips or wondering about how on earth you're going to get the necessary lattice work to get higher up. I found it really clever and cute. I thought it was definitely worth the time and effort involved in playing it, which is to say hardly at all. And if you have the components readily available as I did, it's available on the web. If you look for the Ludum Dare website for Towering Dice, you'll find it. The theme of Ludum Dare 49 was unstable, and this this game definitely meets the, the criterion. I, I think next time when I try it, I might try dice that are slightly bigger than the dice for One Deck Dungeon. I think I was playing on hard mode because they are very, very tiny dice and very, very rounded. And as a result, the margin for error was practically zero. But I really enjoyed it. I'm finding that this has been a week of mild revelations about stacking. More on this later. 
And I really enjoy someone taking something so primordial as putting the thing on top of the other thing, which, you know, most of us have been doing all our lives, and finding new ways to gamify those interactions rather than just the straightforward way of, of making things as stable as possible. And so I had, a, I had a great deal of fun with Towering Dice, and I'll probably play it again. You can grab some casino dice, and then you can measure your victory in feet. I think casino dice would be easy mode. Yes. I got to play a Kickstarter game that was just fulfilled. Not fulfilled to me, but fulfilled to Warm Boy. It is called Streets, and this is designed by Hakon Gardner and put out by Sinister Fish Games. I don't trust that fish. I know, right? It's very sinister. It never did. So what you're doing in Streets is you're playing these streets. Surprising, right? Slow down. You're creating these roads, and they can only be five. They can be five or less tiles long. So when you put a street on the on one of the ends, like turning in, it means you're starting another street and or capping one of the ends of one of the streets that are out there. And when you place a street, you're going to populate it with some people that it says on the tile. And when the street finally gets blocked on both ends, you're going to score that street. And scoring it could be all sorts of things. Because when you place a tile, you put one of your little signs on it to show that you place that street. So it could be how many blue meeples are on the street or yellow ones or how many symbols are on the street or all sorts of different ways to score it. Wait, these, so, these people are just hanging out in the middle of the street? They're just hanging out there. Not for long, what are we? Not what for are long. We teach, what are we teaching our children? No wonder this fish is so sinister. So that part of the game is interesting, but now the people start moving. This not I don't want to say fiddly, but just it's just this is where it gets a little awkward. So once you score the street, all these people have to leave. They're tired of that street. <laughs> they, they've been to those restaurants. They've seen that museum. Now they want to go to a new street. So this is dependent on the person that finally capped it. They get to move all of the people off the street. And the yellow meeples have to go to the yellow buildings and the red meeples to the red buildings. But seeing as you're the one that's moving them, and when you score, you also get a point for every meeple that's on your building, you're just going to shuffle them all off onto your buildings and then suddenly you have the street that's heavily populated with tons of meeples and then it scores plus all the meeples that were there already so you just have like this i th really think this should have been a zombie themed game sounds start, like i was about start to start having these hordes of meeples like rampaging across the city into these closed streets I'm just wondering, maybe it's like a riot or something. Maybe you know they, <laughs> you know they mall shop there and they clear out that building and they're off to another one. Anyway, the scoring of the buildings, the placing of the buildings, all of that was very interesting. But this weird movie manipulating the the meeples around, I don't know why I didn't you know shine to it because you know you can control it. You can start making the streets smaller so they're not so many are moving around or you know, if you see someone that has a bunch of them under their control, you can make sure you close the next one to you know move them away. But I'd gladly give it another try, but wasn't overly fond of it. This is Streets. I played a game called Draftosaurus, which was designed by a, a small army of very talented individuals. Antoine Bozard, Corentin Labrade, Ludovic Maublanc, and Théo Rivière, many of whom have done things that were big, big fans of, particularly Antoine Bozard, who's definitely one of our favorite European designers. And Draft of Soros is indeed, as it indicates, a drafting game, but basically it's a roll-and-write game, effectively, because what you have is a pool of dinosaurs, and someone's going to roll a die. The die is going to indicate a restriction about where you can place your dino. 
but you're filling out elements of a spreadsheet that looks exactly like a roll and write score sheet. And then you pass your fistful of dinos and then somebody else hands you a new fistful of dinos. So the draft element definitely elevates it. It's definitely preferable than just a straight roll a die, place the thing. The, the, the die gives some context, but you're actually placing the different types of dinosaurs. And I was promised when the game was pulled out a cute and quick game, and it is definitely both of those things. It's about 20 minutes long, maybe. You only place 12 dinosaurs total. And as a consequence, the game moves very, very briskly. And the dinosaur meeples are very cute. But ultimately, one of the things that I thought was uh, unfortunate about it, above and beyond the fact that it's shackled to a fundamental roll-and-write type format, which I have serious misgivings about, it also led to weird player order issues. Because when you roll a die and that gives you some serious restriction, and then you get to pick from six dinosaurs, that's one thing. But when a die gets rolled that introduces a serious imposition and you've got one dinosaur left to place, that is a massive imposition. At that point, your play is practically forced. And some people never get the restriction when they have one dinosaur left. They always have at minimum two. And other people in the player order will only will only have one sometimes when the die gets rolled. This doesn't strike me as ideal. The player, or I, we checked the rule book, the player order doesn't alter in a way that can accommodate this, and so I found that a little disappointing. Again, when the game is that simple, you should probably take into account these kind of issues, but if you're looking for a, a Featherlight, quick, roll-and-write-ish type thing, with maybe a tiny hint, a soupçon, a little taste, a droplet, a niblet. A tiny niblet, thank you, thank you, there you go. A tiny niblet more player interaction than normal, because you do at least get to look at other people's boards and what's in your handful of dinosaurs and think, well, what kind of dinosaur would they like to have and what kind of dinosaur can I expect to get later based on what I've drafted before. It's not nothing. It's definitely something. I would play Draftosaurus again, but in terms of drafting games, I would, of course, much rather play Fairy Tale. And in terms of rolling rights, I would, of course, much rather play Roll a Six Minute Cookie. And look, and if you want to have a dinosaur version, you can have Roll a Six stick your head in the mouth of the Tyrannosaurus Rex. There you go. That's your dinosaur version of Roll a Six Minute Cookie. Yes, uh, Draftosaurus is also on Board Game Arena. I'm not sure in what sort of iteration, whether it be Alpha or Beta, but I've played it several times on there. And like you said, as rolling rights go, it is not terrible. Without the physical meeples, hard pass. True enough. And that is Draftosaurus. So we were sent a review copy of a game called Settlement. This is out by iGames. This is designed by Alexander Nevsky. And it was a, it was, it's a nice uh, introduction or gateway game. What you're doing is you are taking one of these seven actions, and it's very much like Cairo where you've, you've drafted these buildings and you get to run these streets so you have like a three by three grid of streets and you have a three by three grid of your outlying sort of provinces. And then as an action, you can run these lines of streets and you get all the abilities that you've lined up there. And out in the outland, when you, when you put a tile out there, it could get populated by monsters. It's like this, it's like the cool Batman theory, Mark. You see, <laughs> if, if you have great heroes, you're going to have equal villains. So when you flip up a tile and it has a red monster, you have to look down. And if there's a red hero, then in fact, you do get a red monster. If there's no red hero, then no red monster. <laughs> Wait, this is the theory where, as to why Batman never wanted Superman to come to Gotham, because Batman basically said, I only fight D-listers. And if you show up, then the A-listers will start showing up. Is that the idea? No, it's like, it's like, it was, it's usually the whole line of, you know, why the Joker happened right? The okay. Joker happened because it was a great hero, so therefore there had to be a great villain. Oh, okay, because I, I've been told 
that the reason why Superman doesn't show up in Gotham is because Batman has told him to stay out because he's worried about, like, extra-level, extraterrestrial, cosmic-level threats visiting his city. Same sort of thing, yeah. Sure, same principle. Works both at the micro-level and the macro-level. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly, exactly. So what what this does have is an odd thing, which makes sense. I don't understand why more games, like, don't have this. Usually, when you have this, uh, the type of game where when you run out of resources, in this case, you're placing meeples out. But some actions take more meeples than others. But when you run out, you normally have to pass. But normally you take your action and then when it comes back to you, you say, well, I have no resources left or no meeples left, so I'm going to pass. But in this one, you take your actions and then you immediately pass. And I, I can I couldn't think of a game that actually, you know, does that. So you like you take your action, immediately pass, and then you get to do your, you know, after round stuff while everyone else is finishing their turn. So I thought it was a great way to keep nice. the game moving. And the populated monster thing I thought was very interesting as well, because not only do you populate them when you flip when you put the tiles out in your outland, also when you run that line of the outland to get resources, every one that you get resources from, you check to see if there's a hero and then you repopulate it with a monster unless you've built a fortification there. These heroes sound like bad news. They are bad news because they don't actually kill the monsters. You have to kill the monsters and then you can hire the, the heroes later and all they do. Oh, this sounds like a racket. One of those rackets where the heroes and the villains are, are secretly in cahoots. Exactly. All they do is wow. give you victory points. They are semi-interesting. They're, they're very much uh, sort of Concordia style where there's a bunch that will give you victory points depending on how many buildings you've got or fortifications you've got. And then you get multiples of them and then they multiply. Stuff like that. So you can sort of manipulate your outland, put fortifications on some of them because they won't monsters won't populate if you have a fortification there, and you can make it so that the easier to kill monsters will show up, so you can easily kill them and get you know the reward because you do get rewards for killing the monsters. And I I found it a, a very interesting game. I wouldn't mind playing it more, but it is very light. It's you know you're you know getting resources, turning them in, buying heroes, but all the components are very nice. And the, the fact that you get to, you know, create your own little engine is very interesting as well. I think it's about one turn too long as well. It, 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 it tends to drag a little bit near the end. Mm. That is Settlement by iGames. Good week for me for Tableau Builders. I got to play both Race for the Galaxy, which is my all-time favorite t- Tableau Builder, as well as Innovation. Innovation I hadn't played for quite some time. It's Been Too Long by Carl Chuddock and Asmati Games. Uh, again, full disclosure, Asmati Games is run by Chris Cheslick, a friend of mine. And it really does make me disappointed that so many people really like Tableau Builders, but have never played what I think are some of the all-time greats, namely, specifically, Innovation and Race for the Galaxy. 51st State Master Set also belongs on that list as well, although it's a little more pedestrian as far as Tableau Builders go. I understand why some people don't like Innovation, but I really think it's disappointing that that more people haven't tried it, because it is a wild experience, and it is best at two, although I defend the three- and four-player-with-teams experience. And it's one of those situations where you really have to be willing to ride the chaos and grab things when you can. Because unlike most engine builders, like, for example, Race for the Galaxy, where you can consciously go out and say, all right, I have all these planets that can process certain types of goods. Now what I need to do is just generate those types of goods and find in the deck the cards that will get me that. 
which is a pretty common Tableau Builder experience. In innovation, you can't really approach things in that way. You can't really expect to generate a certain point-generating engine on the strength of cards that you're going to get. Instead, what you have to do is just accept that a lot of things are going to happen, and you need to be able to adapt to the changing circumstances. And sometimes you're going to have a point-scoring engine. Sometimes you're going to have a theft engine. Sometimes you're going to have none of them at all, and you're just going to have to prepare for, uh, for the next stage of the game by splaying and getting more icons as best you can which is actually most of the time what I do. When I play Innovation, I, I most of the time just go for it. I'm going to splay as many tableaus as I can, get as many icons that are visible, and just wait to seize my opportunity. But then again, I'm a Cosmic Encounter player, so that's probably my approach to many things in life. I, I thoroughly enjoy Innovation even when I'm getting stomped, because again, you have to accept that there's a certain degree of chaos, and there's just so many clever bits about the way player interaction works in a both positive manner from the sharing element. If you have as many icons as somebody else when they trigger a power, you get to do that thing as well. Sometimes you're obliged to do that thing as well, and knowing when to trigger that can be very consequential. But at the cost of giving the opponent more card draw, then there are demand effects, which are more punitive effects, which you are immune to if you have as many icons. Sometimes you should try to build towards working that icon deficiency. Sometimes you just suck it up and transition. It's a great game, and it is a shame as as I said, that more pedestrian deck builders have overshadowed it. There are many sets of expansions for innovation, and I have all of them. I just haven't tried them because there's enough variety already in the base game. Every expansion adds a tremendous number of cards, but honestly, the base game deck of slightly over 100 cards provides you so much variety and so many different interesting game effects that I've never felt the need to go on to more expansions. I, I, I'm inclined to try them. I'm curious. But I've never been in a game group where they were really keen to explore that frontier with me. So that is probably something that's going to have to go on my gaming bucket list. So very happy to return to my favorite Tableau Builders, Race for the Galaxy, and Innovation, the latter of which by Carl Chuck. I unfortunately had to speak with Kevin's family. You see, there was an accident on the job site. Kevin had fallen for, from a very high girder. And unfortunately, that boat that Kevin and his father were working on will not have a maiden voyage. <laughs> I got to play Men at Work, Mark. And Men at Work, you're building this skyscraper with girders and beams and bricks and workmen. And you're balancing them in this like crazy network of pickup sticks slash death trap. <laughs> and it always leads to fantastic stories of the poor fatalities that happen on the work site. Thankfully, we didn't make it to the end game that always falls apart in dexterity games like this. But because uh, my opponents didn't know how to build. <laughs> other than that. Always love Men at Work. The component quality is through the roof. Pretzel Games knows what they're doing when it comes to dexterity, meeple-like games. All little workers have like little blue overalls and actual real hard hats. And you get to make very interesting looking... Interesting. How many times am I going to say interesting today? We should keep count. Make a little ding noise, Mark, every time I say interesting. Has this crane that goes in the center of the table and you can use it to balance beams on. Love playing Men at Work. I've never played with a crane. I would just like to note for a legal disclaimer, lest we get sued, when Walker said they are actual hard hats, what he means is they are little plastic toys, not actually approved hard hats. True. Do not use the hard hats from the Men at Work game when you go to work. Not OSHA approved. That would make be a mistake, and people might laugh at you as well. Final game from me. 
I would encourage everyone to check the weather report in Perdition and whether or not your pork has taken flight, because I finally got four science from Gray Fox Games. This was designed by R. Eric Royce, and uh, once again, R. Eric Royce is a personal friend of mine. I never got to play for science. I heard about for science for years, Walker. Years. Living in and around Cambridge. People who'd been playtesting it. People who were involved in the final development work. Or even before that, when Eric was just tinkering with, with the idea. And everyone was talking about it in the most glowing terms imaginable. And then there was this delay. This prolonged delay and agonizing fulfillment process... Of course, it was delayed because it was Kickstarter programs, but on top of that, the fulfillment was just agonizingly, oh, it's almost at the door. Oh, no, wait, we were wrong. Oh, wait, it's at the fulfillment center. Wait, no, actually, no, it's not. Oh, it's over there. No, wait, it's over there. It's on Mars. But finally, I have my copy of Force Science. Force Science is a real-time cooperative dexterity game. So in other words, it's one of the most niche products imaginable. And I am that niche. I am solidly in that niche. I like hobby games, I like real-time games, I like co-ops, and I like dexterity games. And very much like Towering Dice, but more so, For Science reinvents stacking. I thought I knew how to stack things. I've been playing dexterity games with you and with other people for a very long time. I like Men at Work. I like Rhino Hero Super Battle. I like even simpler stuff like Mur de Pies or anything like that. I love stacking stuff. But For Science makes you rethink stacking in a way that hurts my brain because it's all about spatial connections. In real time, what you're doing is you're trying to cure diseases. And the way you do that is you play all these design cards. Sometimes you have additional requirements instituted by those diseases. Like the disease might say every design card has to have three objects on it. Or every card has to have this kind of piece on it. Or no card can have this kind of piece on it. What have you. And then eventually, someone gets to build the thing. And the requirements are devilishly simple. And at the same time, fiendishly tricky. Because... The design cards, in conjunction with various other game constraints, will say that a given piece must touch the following things and not touch anything else. And the spatial geography of the cards leads you to deceptive practices. Let me just give you an example for this. A given card might have several pieces on it. And you might think, because you're building the cards out in a line, that therefore you're going to build the actual blocks in kind of sort of the same way. No, no, no. You might have something that's on the fourth card at the very top be very near the bottom of the build, and something that's on the second card be very near the top. And then you've been building this thing, and then you double-check to see, and oh wait, those two pieces were supposed to touch. Oh well, better start again. And so there's no straightforward way to build a lot of these things. Now, you can make very straightforward builds if you want to, but that's not really how you're going to win. Sometimes there's a there's a place for that. But the, the ones that really tend to give you the very valuable stuff that helps you towards victory conditions, which is another puzzle on top of all this stuff, are the ones where you really have to re-examine how you're going to manipulate these blocks and realize, oh, I didn't know you could stack a green block that way. Well done. I guess that's stable. And sometimes you have someone checking your build and saying, I don't think those two pieces are touching. And you say, no, 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 right here. They're touching right there. And then they lean over and they find... Anyway, I've been having a blast with For Science. It's a 15-minute long game. I played it three or four times over the course of the past few days. It's not at its best solo, but you can play it solo. I've only played it max two players so far. It goes up to a maximum of six, and that I really want to play a higher player count game. I don't know how much success I'm going to find because, as I say, this is a super niche product because there's room for delegation, there's room for specialization, there's room for cooperation, there's room for people to go off and, and puzzle things out on their own. The social elements of this co-op are 
are fascinating to me. Because when you're doing a build, you're pretty much in your own little world, but then someone else has to come and verify it, and or someone else can come assist with it with a variety of cool special powers. For example, one of the special powers is relatively obvious, and that is when you're doing a build, you can just omit one of the pieces. I took that one, made me very happy. You encounter a problem and say, no, 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 this green is causing me difficulties, the green doesn't exist. But there are other ones that exist exclusively to give other people a hand, in some cases, literally. One of them is, you may use a hand to brace someone else's build in any way they want. <laughs> and so you can make these impossible builds because someone's literally holding it stable. Or, the, or, of course, the person getting coffee who's able to hand out other people cards to exceed their hand limit, but... They're going to be spending most of their time handing out extra cards. Anyway, there's a lot of humor in Force Science, a lot of satire of pure research and of funding, lots of references to funding and coffee going on in Force Science. And it's, as I say, it's made me look at simple objects in the game that I thought would be transparent and obvious in entirely new ways, where sometimes it's a simple rotation or a simple reorientation of what's going on made me reapproach these basic gaming processes that I've been doing for over a decade. So kudos to Eric for this. I think it's a, a, a fascinating design, a marvelous little toy that has much more depth than it looks like it has. I am very much looking forward to more experience for science, and it's a shame, Walker, that you didn't back it. Hey, uh, don't. Okay, it's not even funny. You should have backed it, Walker. If you I, wanted to play the game, you should have backed it. I did didn't... back it, Mark. I don't even have... I don't, I don't even have a notification... I'm sorry, I shouldn't be mocking you. But then again, you shouldn't mock me because I haven't won Regicide yet. So how does it feel? I've only won it twice so far, Mark. Um, <laughs> oh, how dare you? How <laughs> dare you, you monster? <laughs> All right. So a while ago, we got a review copy of The Pursuit of Happiness. This is a game from Artipia Games, and I requested it because it it sounds a little bit like we play like the game of life. And... And Butterfly said this is a game that she remembered from her youth and she wanted to give it a try. I haven't had a chance to play it with her yet, but I did get a chance to play it for player. And it does sort of give you that, you know, nostalgic feeling because you're doing like silly things like you're being a politician and you're, you know, playing paintball and you're doing all these, you know, <laughs> going on vacation and you're choosing all these different, you know, jobs and events and things that you do in your life and you get your happiness meter and you get a partner and all these things are happening. The problem lies that it goes on for several turns and there is no buildup. You're just doing the same things over and over again for seven turns. The cards aren't graduated. There's nothing that comes into the game. You know, you are getting older and you're getting less actions sometimes or things happens with your stress level with that. And it does have an interesting end game where if you didn't take care of yourself you know, health-wise, that you're going to be out of the game before the other players because your stress level, you know, kills you. Life is a player elimination game. Which was very interesting. But Dang. I think it, it is just two turns too long and needs a little bit more of build-up. They do have quite a few expansions. I'm not sure what they bring to the game, but I'll have to read up on it and see if that's something to look into. Even the game of life knew that you had to structure the events that were transpiring. Now, they did, of course, in a very simplistic kind of way. But, you know, you did decide whether to go to college. Uh, you should. 
in the game. I'm not I'm sorry. In real life, you should pursue whatever educational avenues make sense to you. <laughs> but in the game, it was just straightforwardly obvious you should go to university. So a bit of a bias there. And then you get married, of course, in a very heteronormative way. Although I think they've changed that. Uh, and then you know things progress. But you weren't like becoming a politician in turn one, and playing paintball in turn six. This is true. Even they had progression right back then. And lastly for me, Concordia Digital came out this week, so I played several hundred games of Concordia. This is by Matt Gertz. He didn't actually do the app or the program, but the original board game was by Matt Gertz, put out by P.D. Vlag. And so I'm just going to talk about the app itself. I think they did a great job. It's just the base game, and you can play a game very quickly. It has AI players that aren't too terrible. They haven't beat me yet. On hard mode, yes. <laughs> but still, they're not they're not awful. It's been very close, and you can put them in, in multiplayer games. A lot of the problems I've seen so far with digital applications is that they'll have AI players if you play by yourself, but as soon as you go into like an online lobby or something, then it's only real players. You can't add in AI players, but you can in this, which is great. Some of the things that are not great are the fact that as it cycles through the other players' turns, you don't have any idea whose turn it is. It doesn't highlight their name or... Remember, all mm. these things I'm talking about could already be changed or there could be a setting, but they haven't made that setting very visible to me, even though I've like looked for how to fix these two things. And the last thing is is the victory conditions on the cards. Like When you buy the cards, it'll tell you what the victory conditions are then, but as soon as you have them in your deck, then, that, then you know, Bob's your uncle you know, on what they do. After you've purchased a card, the victory condition attached to the card is no longer visible? Correct. That's wild. You can bring up a menu on the side that'll say, you know, Mars does this, Venus does that. It'll tell you what each card, each card does, but it's not very overly, you know, what cards you've got. You know, when you compare it to the game where they've got this great, you know, artist, you know, on the bottom of every card, you know exactly what you've got perfect they just it doesn't have the same sort of connection in this game mm. that's too bad because that of course is one of my frequent complaints about digital implementations a sense of alienation from the components involved yeah it's true but and you can change the nice other nice part is you can do a, a live victory point tally where you know it's constantly updated on how many victory points everyone has which i thought ah. was nice as well and those are the games we played this week now on to the news and why it doesn't matter now, on the topic of uh, digital implementations, Board Game Arena has Feast for Odin in Alpha, and it is fantastic. Played a few games this week of that. No expansions for that included at the moment, but so far we had one glitch on our first game where uh, it just didn't get to the victory points at the end, but the several games played afterwards, no problems, so that should be available very soon. Feast for Odin on Board Game Arena. On the topic of Board Game Arena, and this is one of the reasons actually why we're so loath to get involved formally with either platforms or publishers or distributors, because we, it always seems like we have the worst luck. The moment we plan to do anything minimal, even with somebody active in the board game industry, they then sometimes just step in it and do something we disapprove of. So Board Game Arena was indeed the venue for our, our, our Twitch fundraiser, but this was in the midst of Board Game Arena actively calling other competing online board game implementations like Yukata and Tabletopia and et al. illegal in their chatbot. So 
it's perfectly reasonable, and I've seen this a lot of times, where in the chatbot, if somebody mentions a competing service, then an automated bot shows up and says, please don't discuss competitors in the context of our own platform. That part's fine. And if that had been the limit of their intervention, I would have had zero objections. It's their playground, they get to set the rules. But they had the chatbot repeatedly showing up and accusing specific platforms like Yukata.de and Tabletopia and other other uh, competitors as being illegally infringing on the rights of board games. And so a whole bunch of publishers who had specifically given the rights to these other platforms showed up and said, no, that's not true. What are you doing? This is libel. Why are you libeling these people that are your competitors? And for a long time, Board Game Arena said, oh, well, you know, it's a bug. We can't solve it. It's like, what are you talking about? This isn't a bug. This is because you've specifically decided that the text that your chatbot says is arguably libelous and wrong. Why are you lying about your competitors? Anyway, they fixed it. It took them days. After legions of complaints <laughs> from people, both on their platform and elsewhere. Uh, so here's my pro tip. I'm not an expert on business. I don't really... I, I, I'm not in-depth in these uh, in, in environs. Don't accuse your competitors of doing illegal things when they're not. That's my take-home message. It's deep, Mark. That was deep. So I'm going to have a new segment for the news, Mark. One-time <laughs> one time segment. It's going to be called okay. Games Not Played This Week. Okay. This could be kind of long, don't you think? We did not play Sleeping Gods because it was voted to drop Sleeping Gods as our Sunday campaign. So there will be no more games of Sleeping Gods. Instead, mm. we'll be playing Scion Tempora. So more news on Scion Tempora coming up. Sine? No, it's not Sione. I'm calling it Sion Tempora. Okay, I can call fine. it what I want. All right, all right, fine, fine. I bought the game. I'll call it what I want. Oh, is that how it works? Like my father always said, it's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. Exactly. All right. Whatever makes you happy, Walker. On that news, I thought I've, I've talked about your, your Penguin Mini already, but, you know, we've talked about it apparently on, on in only other recordings. It is just too cute, Mark. Watching these stretch goals come up and, and the art that this gentleman, that this person has is fantastic. And too cute to be real. This is Yuri Yura Penguin Mini. Many people have had comments about the spelling. This is Y-U-R-A, Y-U-R-A, which basically is Japanese for wobbly. So this is just wobbling penguin mini. It can fit in your pocket so you can play little mini Yuri Yura Penguin. Instabuy. There's some early news released on Twitter about Cole Worley's next collaboration with later games. It's going to be called Arcs. It is going to be a science fiction game, and unfortunately, it's going to still be a campaign game, but it's a return back to the campaign format that I'm actually a fan of, which is to say a small-ish number of short games, and you're expected to run several campaigns over the course of your playing experience with the game. So, uh, again, early days, but Cole Worley says he anticipates that a campaign of arcs will be two to four sessions of a 60 to 75 minute game. And I can get behind that. Certain exceptions notwithstanding, I'm interested in giving a try to Artisans of Splendid Vale because largely of my faith of the design and writing work of Nikki Valens. But other than that, I've been passing on these 20 to 40 session campaign games, hard, hard, hard pass so long. And when I initially saw that Cole Early was designing another campaign game, I'm like, eh, 
not interested. But when I saw that it was science fiction, and I saw that it's intended to be very, very brief and self-contained, that I'm more interested in. And so maybe with luck, this will be up in Kickstarter sometime over the course of the next year or so, sometime in 2022. But again, early days, who knows? That is Arcs from Cole Worley and Leader Games. So this week on Twitch, we played Streets and Settlement. This Saturday coming up, we're going to be playing Tidal Blades. So come and check that out with us, 10.30 Eastern on Twitch. Welcome to Naviri. And lastly, like we said last week, next week is Thanksgiving, so there will be no episode next week. We will see you in two weeks. And now, on to our topic, which is player interaction. Take it or leave it. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's multiplayer solitaire. I <laughs> I suggested this because there's been a resurgence on social media of discussion about multiplayer solitaire. Why do people have a problem with it? Why do some people think it's okay? And I thought it would be a good idea to, at the very least, clarify our own thoughts about the shortcomings and or benefits of games that we label as multiplayer solitaire. And I also have some specific discussions of some games that do better than others, at least as far as I'm concerned. So I have a definition of player interaction, Mark. You have a... Oh, wow. This is this is broad and bold. You have a I definition know, right? of player interaction. I know. This is going to be great. I'm sure there'll be no comments whatsoever. Oh, my so, goodness. I'm nervous already. Forcing players to rethink their strategy based on the input or lack thereof of from other players. I don't know, man. I don't I don't really engage with definitions the same way most people do. I define things by ostension. Philosophy training taught me that. Uh, and I think that player interaction is what my, uh, my linguist friends would obnoxiously call semantically compositional. Namely, it just means what the words mean. It's just interaction of the players. But sure, we can tentatively adopt your definition for now. No, I agree. That's not really different. It's just something I came up with. Like you said, it's really up to the players of the group. And looking through a bunch of stuff, so many different people think it's so many different things. Because you could just, you could technically, you could say that trying to beat someone for victory points is interacting with them. Trying to get more victory points than them. Sure. Thereby, the definition of waiting until it's your turn because someone else is taking a turn is interaction. That you're, you're absolutely right. If you want, if you want to press the definition, you absolutely get to a point where it's meaningless, and the only time that games become true multiplayer solitaire are instances where you're all playing simultaneously and nothing that you do can possibly interact with anyone else, up to and including, I don't know, th- those times when you start kicking me in the shins when you think that I'm making a move badly. So. I think the major problem, I think, with multiplayer solitaire is what we've seen in many things, because we've seen in co-op games and solo games, because the crux of these games lies in randomness. And if one player is overly lucky, then you're, you're not able to gang up on them and crush them into the ground for being so lucky. <laughs> okay, well, I, I agree with you there. Um, I have a couple caveats, though. I'm always nervous about games... And sometimes designers say this explicitly. It's like, yeah, sure, there might be vicissitudes of events or various other things that lead to one player getting an advantage. But this game is political in the sense that you should just gang up on that player. And it's like, well, that can just be an excuse for lazy design. And let's not also forget that there are lots of multiplayer solitaire games where 
there's precious little randomness. Sometimes, you know, multiplayer solitaire is traditionally associated with the Euro design influence, and a lot of Euro games are minimal to no luck. So I agree with you that in some contexts, if you if there's not enough player interaction, it's too much multiplayer solitaire, and there's no ability to cooperate against somebody, that's a problem. But I think, and this is partially speaking for me and partially channeling what I think other people say, is that they feel that a multiplayer solitaire game is deficient also in a social experience. That it feels a little bit less like a shared social activity. That you're basically all collectively gathering together and then not saliently interacting with each other in quite the same way. Or at least not or at least your interaction is not being channeled through the game systems. Because I've seen lots of people say, well, of course, even if you're playing multiplayer solitaire together, that's obviously not the extent of your interaction. You you should should still be interacting with people. And of course we do that. Like we don't sit down when we play multiplayer solitaire games and cease to speak to each other. That's just not how we roll. But it does help to feel perhaps a little bit socially alienating when the shared activity doesn't feel quite so shared. And I think that's what a lot of people are getting at when they point to the social deficiencies or or alleged social deficiencies for their group of multiplayer solitaire games. I'm interested to see which games that you designate as single-player solitaire or multiplayer solitaire. The one I came up with mostly is Take It as probably my favorite one and that I think falls into this category is Take It to the Limit. Sure. I think this is a great game. You like you flip a tile and everyone grabs that number and you sort of slide it onto your sheet, very roll and write-ish type thing. Yeah, it's definitely one of the progenitors of the roll and write type of format. Absolutely. And so eventually everyone it's not so much like Karuba took that and made it way much more uh interactive with the other players because you could, you know, take treasures before they did and stuff like that. <laughs> But it's that sort of thing, because depending on where you place that tile, everyone's board is going to quickly change and be completely different than everybody else's board. I I agree entirely that that is perhaps the paradigmatic example of a multiplayer solitaire experience, the sort of group puzzles. Roll and writes are a classic example of this, where you have some sort of random inputs, and then everyone processes these random inputs in a way that is completely divorced from everybody else. Another example of this was Ricochet Robot. Anytime a game says you can play up to like 100 people, you know something's up. You know that probably there's not going to be a whole heck of a lot of interaction, with some exceptions. Ricochet Robot was a, a classic example of a game that I would, would throw me into conniptions of stress uh, anytime I considered playing it, because it's a pure spatial puzzle that operates on thinking patterns that I'm completely incapable of. You basically have this board of robots that move very, very, by very simple rules, and you say, okay, get them to this end point in however many moves, and the only interaction between players is people effectively bidding about how many moves it will take them to get to the solution of the puzzle, where the lowest number that's able, able to get it there wins. And any form of group puzzle of this instance, yeah, I think is pretty much the paradigmatic example of multiplayer solitaire. And the one that falls into the complete randomness is like a game like Yahtzee, where you're just taking turns rolling the dice, and one person is luckier than the other, and the lucky person wins. Well, Yahtzee is even worse, because there at least you're not even operating on the same rolls. You're just watching somebody else process their rolls, and then you process your rolls, and so it's even more multiplayer solitaire than than the roll and rights. So let me ask you a question, Walker. Because we've played, as is clear, we've played a bunch of games of this style. 
when you are playing a multiplayer solitaire game of this type with, you know, random inputs and then everyone processes their own puzzle, do you feel that this is a less good social experience than other kinds of games? I do. Would you care to explain why? Because mostly in those circumstances, it's a thing down to luck. There's like no, a lot of these games are all about, you know, we're, did I roll my dice? Was my outcome luckier than everyone else? Because there's not much more there. There's not, I haven't seen many games that are straight up skill-based uh, multiplayer solitaire. Oh, well then I, Ricochet Robot would be a good example. Uh, I have not played it. Yeah. Okay, well then let's let's move on to a slightly less purely solitaire experience, but it's still pretty multiplayer solitaire. I mean, these are words that we, we ourselves have used to describe these kinds of games. And I'm thinking specifically of, say, for example, some of the better worker placement games that are still mostly multiplayer solitaire. So Feast for Odin, you mentioned already in the news, that I think is an example. Hallertau is an example. There is some player interaction, absolutely. You know, you used that spot before I could get to there or whatever. But especially like unexpanded Feast for Odin. The chances of there being deliberate blocking are close to nil because the board is so open. Mark, and it's there's only 64 spaces. <laughs> I love Feast for Odin, but you have to admit on the spectrum of multiplayer it's, solitaire games, it's pretty close it's, to multiplayer it's, solitaire. It's, it's funny because it sounds like I'm exaggerating. No, I know. <laughs> I know but you're there not are 64 spaces. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's not only that, because I could imagine a game having 64 spaces, but there's still being more opportunity for blocking. It's so sandboxy, you're off doing your own thing. Like, yeah, sometimes multiple people end up hammering the whaling space, sure. And then there might be some jockeying for turn order. But setting all that aside, so do you feel that a game of Feast for Odin or Hallertau or any of those worker placement games where it's more or less multiplayer solitaire, do you feel that those are somehow more deficient social experiences than, say, a game of, I don't know, whatever head-to-head game you want to pick, like Kemet or Ankh or El Grande or what have you. They're a little bit better, but they also, you can, you can tell in Feast for Odin it sort of falls in the same thing because everyone's drawing from that same deck and someone's going to draw a card that just happens to work within their strategy better than everyone else and there's no way except for, you know, maybe taking the spot that they needed, but, you know, guess what? You know, it has the generic spot at the bottom, lets them repeat a space, so they get it anyway. So there's definitely, there's no way to stop, you know, that random effect from happening in Feast for Odin. I'm fascinated. Okay, I'm interested that you would say that about Feast for Odin particularly, because unlike Hallertau, I find the luck of the draw for the cards in Feast for Odin to be borderline negligible. Like, the cards are so ancillary most of the time. Because I would level that particular criticism, that a lot of it just comes down to the luck of the draw, to another worker placement game that we both kind of enjoy that is very much not multiplayer solitaire, and that is specifically Court of Miracles. Court of Miracles is very in-your-face, there's lots of direct competition, there's lots of direct conflict, but to my mind, and I've said this before, one of my key criticisms of it is that a lot of it comes down to what action cards you pull and when you pull them. So, to your mind... I, I, here I am trying to, to focus in on my uh, my apparent shortcomings, which I'll get to later, which is pure, primarily a social experience. But to you, you keep going back to the design shortcomings and the influence of randomness. Correct. Huh. That's just an interesting difference in, in the way we approach things. Because my chief misgivings about multiplayer solitaire games, which again can be overcome, a lot of these games I love, is I don't get to 
interact with the other people around the table in the same way that I would playing another game. When I'm playing a game of, even if I don't accept that it's 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 a, as well designed, when I'm playing Court of Miracles, I'm engaged with people in a way that I'm not when playing A Feast for Odin. Yes, we're talking. Yes, we're joking. We're thrilling at other people's experiences. You know, we get to commiserate over someone's bad die roll for a conquest event or what have you. Or I get to say, oh, that was a neat combo you pulled off in A Feast for Odin. But at the end of the day, you're there with your own board. And your own board is your own private little universe. And I don't really have much access to it. And so you're going to be dividing your attention between your private universe and the shared universe of the game that we inhabit. In the Court of Miracles, there is no private universe. There's only the public universe, and everything we do impacts and touches on that public universe, regardless of my misgivings about the design elements. So at least socially, I feel it's got a leg up. True, and sometimes when you have too much player interaction, it, it bogs the game down. So that doesn't usually happen in Feast for Odin for that reason, because other than taking the exact spot that you needed, your strategy is kind of already set. You know what you want to do, so when it's your turn, you place your workers, you do what you want to do, and you move on. Whereas these games that have this direct interaction, you have to sort of look at the score and see who's in the lead. And, well, I have this card that's really going to hurt someone, but who should I hit it with? Because, you know, mm. it's, it's just one of those things. There are ways to mitigate that, though. I mean, that's one of the key reasons why you keep the scores hidden in Tigers and Euphrates, right? right? the last part, right? This is the entire reason why behind hidden game scoring or or hidden orders, right? Where you, you know, you put your actions face down and you flip them up because it leads to this, you know, quicker play. You're not usually worried about, you know, people's scores because you can't tell what they're playing or what their score is. And it usually means unknown factors. Like, are they going to play that card or do they want that card or won't they play it or do they have it? Or, you know, do they know what I want type thing? You know, you sort of like bluff your way. Oh, I don't really want that space anyway. And <laughs> all of this stuff, you know, works out in the end. And again, I think that the, these are less elements that fall out of the social factors and more just design failings. I've talked before, if you're going to have a highly interactive game with lots of targeted aggression, it should be relatively transparent to see who's winning. It shouldn't be the case where the absolute nightmare scenario of these instances, call it the bunny kingdom phenomenon, if you will, where there is a public scoreboard, so it looks like you know who's winning, but the overwhelming majority of the points are actually going to come from very difficult to calculate factors. And so you have to decide who to target. But then everyone starts whining about how, yeah, I've got 32 points now. But wait until you see what the final score is going to be. So don't pick on me. Pick on JD instead. And that, that to me, is, is not a social problem of high-player interaction games, but rather just a degeneracy of some designs. Like, again, going back to even just purely confrontational games, like Kemet, like El Grande, they don't have that issue because most of it is just transactional and, and it's not a question of, of spite or anything. So it's not a function of the interaction, it's a function of the, of the design, I think. Yeah, I have that in here. It's, I have it as may lead to table bullying, where you, it's like, well, if you don't do that thing, then they're going to win. Or I, I could have done it, but I didn't want to waste my turn doing it. Yeah, if you don't stop them, they're going to win. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely, and this is something that you're you're reminding me of. This is one of the things that really emphasizes that multiplayer solitaire, as a broad as a broad category, is very useful to have in your back pocket because some people really don't like playing highly interactive games, whether they're directly confrontational or not. 
They like that private universe. They like that level of planning, that level of confidence, that level of privacy, even while engaging in the sh- shared experience, in very much the same way that other people don't. They want to be able to get in each other's faces. They don't feel like they're engaging in, in, in the same experience if they're not able to go and, as you say, kick over their sandcastle. Now, then, of course, that's a separate issue, which is entirely not germane to this conversation about what kicking over sandcastle is. I, I will once again repeat my favorite quote from Louis after playing El Grande, which was, that was an interesting game, shame there wasn't any, uh, shame there wasn't enough player interaction, which was really just the, <laughs> the way of saying for Louis, the only kind of player interaction that I ever recognize is direct fighting. And you get into some games that you might consider as because when the when the combat is completely predetermined or you know it's there's no dice rolling or anything like you could could you say that small world is a multi multiplayer solitaire game because when it's your turn no one can actually do anything and all the combat is predetermined oh i see i don't know that anyone would do that but i see where you're coming from well there's I think you're talking about whether or not there's any degree of reaction or how staged or how deterministic the interaction is. There is some degree of chance and randomness in Small World. You can roll the die for that final conquest, but other than that, you're right. And then we were talking about how worker placement is very minimalistic, you know, player interaction. and Much of the time, not always. Not always, but that really leads to what we usually always talk about where the designer really needs to make all of those spaces very balanced because, you know, if there's that one or two spaces that are are more useful or more powerful than others, then you get into this, you know, heavier conflict for those particular spots. Yeah, worker placement often gets a bad rap, I think deservedly so, because I think a lot of designers assume that it introduces player interaction when it doesn't. But some of our favorite worker placement games, Dogs of War, for example, no one would ever confuse Dogs of War for multiplayer solitaire. Uh, No one would ever confuse Empire's Age of Discovery for multiplayer solitaire. Same thing with Tribune. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why there are some of my favorite worker placement games, because they maintain that lovely Euro design element and at the same time having that lovely Euro player interaction that I very much enjoy. And then, then there are also lots of other ways to introduce... Just a a, a a little smidgen, a nugget. What, what was the term that you used? Not a, a morsel, nugget. but oh, a, a nugget, nugget. Yeah. of player interaction. A, an example of this, to my mind, is Beyond the Sun. Beyond the Sun has a lot of your traditional Euro elements of kind of sort of almost but not really still multiplayer solitaire. You know, be the first to accomplish this thing, some degree of indirect blocking. But then you have the sideboard with that lovely element of area control. You don't have to focus on it, but you can, and it's there. And it's uh, a, a way for people to channel their player interaction yayas if they're so inclined. Some other benefits of multiplayer solitaire is the fact that you no longer always have to play to win. You can just sort of play to beat your previous score. And and these games that have that are heavier into conflict, knowing the game beforehand. So these these solitaire games are usually easier to pick up and usually sort of lead to a you know a sort of a common end you know what i mean where it's you know you're filling the a board with tiles or you're you're doing something that the average score is usually you know predetermined and usually going to be either slightly above or slightly below that so it, it sort of balances the game out that is true you don't tend to have quite the same degree of lopsided victories to the same extent there are very high skill ceilings for a lot of these games but that doesn't preclude the fact that sometimes this the scores end up being relatively bunched. Like, just to pick up a positive and a negative, 
just a call back to a game we're both very enthusiastic about that we've discovered recently, Onk, you're not going to get a lot of those same discoveries when playing a multiplayer solitaire game, I think, as some of the emergent gameplay elements in a game of Ankh. By the same token, you're not going to have those experiences where one player triples or, or quadruples the score of somebody else. There are exceptions, of course, but generally speaking, you're right. And and I think you're. Abs- I just want to emphasize this notion of having room to explore, of having the freedom to just pull on things and see what happens and not worry about either destabilizing the game state or having your face caved in. I think that is a tremendous virtue of multiplayer solitaire games. And I think that there's a reason why you frequently talk about the works of Uwe Rosenberg in the sense of wanting to explore and try new things in that context. I think there's no coincidence in that. And then there's roll a six and get a cookie when you roll a four. Now you can't argue that that part of that game is crucial to the to the joy factor that brings out the true power of design of that game. <laughs> Are you criticizing my my roll and write? No, I'm saying it's perfect when you roll it. Like six is a good number. Like you obviously want the six. Sure. When that four comes up, and that that other mechanism, you know, propels the game in in the different direction. I just thought that was. I thought it just showed this multiplayer solitaire <laughs> benefit more than anything else. I dispute your characterization. For me, roll a six when a cookie is a marvelously shared social experience. When I get to eat a cookie, I want to have people delight in my success, and I want to be around to congratulate other people at their being able to win a cookie. How dare you? I'm so sorry. So, things that multiplayer solitaire fix. Whenever there's problems with we often talk about first player problems, i.e. games that don't go in a continuous circle or or bonuses that you get at the beginning of the game. These games power right through that. Also, king making. Any problems with king making or being picked on, these things are all solved instantaneously by making it a solitary type experience. It's also one of the reasons why... I think some people like co-ops so much because regardless of how solitaire some of the mechanisms feel, it still feels like you're operating in the shared universe, even if that's sometimes illusory. An example I would give of this is Spirit Island. Sometimes in Spirit Island, especially the early turns, if there isn't a a support spirit at the table, you're effectively playing multiplayer solitaire. You're off in your own boards, you're in your own corner of the board, you're manipulating your own power tracks and trying to figure out how to work your powers. And sometimes you can even get to the end game and not have substantial interaction between the different boards. It's it, it's rare, but it happens. Sometimes also, though, co-ops really drop the ball. I remember seeing someone complain on the too many born the too many bones forum on BoardGameGeek because one of the low duration bosses, the boss fight consists of a series of one on one duels between the boss and various gear locks in succession. And they they objected very strongly. I mean, they used terms that they shouldn't have, like, broken and things like that. That's not the point. The point is they wanted a shared cooperative experience where they were all inhabiting the same universe, and they objected to the end game being a series of one-on-one duels where the other players had no direct input. And I can respect that feeling of being kind of cheated by a certain set of expectations. Especially if you've gone the whole game sort of building this party where you play off of each other's weaknesses yes. and suddenly you're now separated and have to do your own thing. I can see where that would be a very shocking sort of outcome. Absolutely. 
But I think that highlights, uh, this would be a good way to sort of sum up all my observations and thoughts about multiplayer solitaire. A lot of it is precisely about expectations. When people think of playing a board game together, how much work that together is and what that togetherness constitutes ends up influencing a lot of what people think as being good or bad games or what expectations they have. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of one of our mutual acquaintances, Dr. Handsome, and he objects to a lot of co-ops. And one of the reasons why he doesn't like co-ops is precisely because he wants to feel when he's playing a board game that he's competing against active human beings, or at least interacting with other human beings, rather than fighting against a cardboard adversary. And if you're playing a game like A Feast for Odin, if you're playing a game like Welcome To, if you're, which you shouldn't, or playing a game like Take It to the Limit, you are effectively playing against a cardboard adversary rather than against other people. Other people are going to have a score and you might feel better or worse, but ultimately it's the same deal. And when you're playing a co-op, sometimes you end up feeling similarly like you're just competing against a cardboard system. And that's not what some people want. And sometimes it also depends on how fun you make that cardboard opponent. Like in Feast for Odin, you're using these cool shapes to cover up your neg- you're over you're like a hundred negative points off the beginning and you're tetrising up your board and you're upgrading stuff. See, upgrading always catches everyone. Like you're turning your Pokemon into something cooler. <laughs> Bam, you've got them. So you're upgrading your shapes and they just do you know, it keeps you engaged the whole time, right? And it's I think it's that kind of thing. That makes Feast for Odin really good. I I don't know if I'd put it in those terms. I mean, I, I too am very much engaged by Feast for Odin, and I find it a very satisfying puzzle. But it's hard to put a face or an identity to who my opponent is in a Feast for Odin. Like, the the fact that there are minus ones all over my boards. Like, I don't feel like I've conquered Tierra del Fuego. I don't really feel like I've beaten anything in particular when I get a really good score in a Feast for Odin. On the other hand, if I'm playing... Street Masters, for example, I know who I'm beating, and it's that jerk face boss, and I know exactly who's doing it, so I agree with you that how you personify or conceptualize your opponent or your obstacles matters a whole lot, but let's acknowledge that some games make it easier than others. True, but in that particular, I think, I wonder if that's something that we can key on, is the fact that they want you to feel that you're playing against the game as opposed to playing against the other players, because you cannot change or control what the other players are doing mm. so they want you to give you that perception that it's not them you're playing against that it's the game i'd act that's a good point i'd be surprised if that's the intent i think the the intent is rather there to be some sort of illusion that you're actually competing against other players when in point of fact your adversary is cardboard and i i don't use illusion in a derogatory sense because i think i've said this before games are basically a shared social illusion anyway and there are lots of tricks that good game designers employ to make you ignore the fact that this is a brutally calculational exercise a way to make the game more than the sum of its parts a kind of shared fantasy or imagination or or what have you And I think that if you're looking at a game like Welcome 2 or a game like Feast for Odin or any of these hardcore multiplayer solitaire games, the intent of the designers is to make you believe that you're actually competing against other people rather than struggling against an inert solar system. I could be wrong, though. That's It's a good question. And to sum up, all multiplayer solitaire games are terrible. It's good to get that level of clarity right at the end, Walker. Thank you for summing up in such a succinct way. I appreciate I don't want that. To be, I, I don't want to be, you know, misinterpreted, so... Nuance is for dolts and nerds, and we are exactly. def- we are full-on jocks here, 
at Survey Rombat Games. So thank you very much for joining us. Sports! If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledodice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon, namely in two weeks. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.